So global health and critical care may at first seem paradoxical to you guys. The traditional assumption is that critical care is only possible in high-tech, resource-intensive environments and is either irrelevant, low-priority, or simply not possible in an under-resourced setting. Uh, when I was a fourth-year medical student applying to residency, I remember telling an advisor that I was maybe interested in critical care. Yep, there's no slide. It's black. Thank you. So that person looked at me and said, <laughs> thanks for the check. Um, Andrew, that makes no sense. There's nothing in your resume that speaks to an interest in critical care. You should stick to doing global health. I didn't really have a response at the time, though I felt deep down I had ideas brewing that I couldn't really articulate. And so being the perpetual grudge holder that I am, I just buried it deep inside. And uh, this lecture is my four-year delayed response to why I think global health and critical care is a thing. Okay, so let's start first with a, a general question. What is critical care? The first thing that comes to mind is lines, tubes, and drains, humming ventilators and beeping machines, incredibly time-intensive, resource-intensive, and personnel-intensive, data-driven care, expensive care. Things that come out of the mouth of a certain wisecracking, fast-talking, New Yorker uh, accented on a podcast care. But I challenge you to expand your definition of this. For me, critical care extends beyond the hospital and throughout many aspects of healthcare systems. I like this quote because it makes critical care feel beautifully simple, despite its inherent complexities. The core belief here is that critical illness is a universal state. After all, humans have become critically ill for the entirety of humankind. A human, a person can be equally on the brink of death, whether lying in a cot in Uganda, or being cared for in the UW MICU by dozens of doctors and nurses, or laying down at a bus stop at Pioneer Square Station. Critical illness, therefore, is not defined by the measurement of lactate, vital signs, or the initiation of mechanical ventilation or pressors, or the calculation of Apache scores. This should ring true for everyone in this room, because we live this every day we're at work. You experience this intuitively when you identify that quote-unquote ticking time bomb patient triage the HFC hallway. So there are three major pillars that to me form the foundational philosophy of critical care. One, the timely recognition and stabilization of critical illness. Two, the access and delivery of critical care. And three, the definitive management, recovery, and rehabilitation of critical illness. So in high-income countries, the timely recognition and stabilization of the critically ill may start in the ED, the IC, or the field. It requires rapid triage, efficient protocols and diagnostics, and the initial interventions that you all know so well. This is a snapshot from the death boat accident a few years ago when injured passengers were transferred from the Aurora Bridge to Harborview as well as many other hospitals in the area. Uh, and this is a photo from the recent Las Vegas shootings where hundreds of wounded were triaged, flown, and driven to trauma centers in the state and also throughout the soundings surrounding Southwest region. For access and delivery of critical care, reliable and efficient patient transportation is essential. In our system, it means the complex coordination of multimodal field as well as interfacility transportation. It also means the expedient mobilization of resources within a hospital and the transfer of patients to and from different areas of the hospital with critical care capacity. And finally, the definitive management of critical illness from resuscitation and stabilization towards recovery and rehabilitation. Uh, this image, by the way, was taken from Google Images, just so you're aware, and uh, definitely features overpaid actors. Dead serious. Um, definitely not real doctors. That ultrasound machine, though, is definitely real, definitely expensive. All right. <laughs> so these three pillars should feel intuitive and come as no surprise to everyone here. 
The takeaway is that so much of what we do within the subfields of emergency medicine, whether that's global health, EMS, ultrasound, rural healthcare, wilderness medicine, QA and QI, is unified by this broader view of critical care as a multi-systems approach to the delivery of healthcare. So what is global critical care? To me, it's about keeping those three foundational priorities of critical care, but applying them to areas of the world without the resources that we're accustomed to. It includes recognizing the extent of critical illness where complex monitoring doesn't exist. Global health from a public health standpoint has traditionally focused on disease prevention. The reduction of transmission of communicable diseases such as HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria. The improvement of water supply and sanitation. Areas with the largest bang for the buck for large-scale public health interventions in the face of poverty. The mantra was that the critically ill were beyond saving in, in these settings, and that full focus should be paid to disease prevention and low-cost interventions. So critical care has traditionally been deemed inappropriate, costly, and uh, that's a lower priority than prevention and primary care. Um, and as, as I'll show in the upcoming slides, this lack of prioritization is not justified and based on misconception that critical care is defined by expensive technology. Um, as such, in these resource-limited settings, we must ask ourselves what aspects of critical care are truly appropriate and which are truly cost-effective. So the industrialization and evolution of low- to middle-income countries in the developing world is rapidly changing our assumption of all this, that these countries don't have the capacity to, or resources to perform critical care. We know already that there is a large global asymmetry between the high-income countries um, um, and on the left side of the screen and uh, low-middle-income countries, where the disproportionate amount of the critically ill are in the lower-middle-income countries, where there's poor access and delivery. Cities in low-middle-income countries are experiencing booming population growth due to migrational flux from rural to urban areas. And this brings with it increased incidence of trauma and mass casualty situations as a consequence of dense urban living. There is increased transmission of communicable diseases as well, with a staggering rate of deaths from sepsis, with world rates being about five times that of high-income countries, and rates in sub-Saharan Africa about 12 times that of high-income countries. The capacity of some low- and middle-income countries for complex medical care is increasing, with national medical institutions providing training in advanced surgical and medical subspecialty care in all sorts of disciplines. This is often funded by private institutions, healthcare companies, and well-endowed universities from the high-income countries. However, the pouring of resources from private donors and selected sectors of specialized care can hobble or at least fail to address uh, the greater healthcare system. In many of these very same countries, EMS, disaster response, and emergency medicine is non-existent, and ICUs are poorly staffed or funded, and personnel are poorly trained. In addition to the direct effects of hospital care and mortality, public health interventions depend on community confidence in healthcare to ensure participation and adherence. This failure to rescue concept has been shown in several public health studies to decrease the confidence of healthcare utilization at all levels. Quality hospital care, therefore, for the sex sickest patients has the potential to multiply its effects through increasing community participation in prevention and primary care efforts. The reality is that critical care involves relatively inexpensive training in how to recognize, respond to, and monitor acute illness. This Venn diagram from a paper by Papali et al. Uh, highlights many of the barriers uh, in the strengthening of critical care systems in low-resource settings. It shows that all roads really point to the training and maintenance of healthcare staff and the fundamental equipment that is needed. 
So in the remainder of this talk, I'll be highlighting four essential components to the strengthening of critical care systems in the developing world. Uh, the building of any critical care response system must first take into account uh, the contextual factors of country, such as local politics, economics, and history into consideration. This simply cannot be ignored in global health, if only for the building of cultural awareness for the providers who do work in the field. This may take into account acute disaster response scenarios, such as currently in Puerto Rico, or complex humanitarian emergencies such as genocide and forced displacement. This is a picture of uh, the Rohingya ethnic group in Myanmar. Uh, while I can go on and describe complex socio-political crises around the world, it would be out of scope for an hour-long lecture. Instead, I'll talk a bit about the legacy of Cambodia and how I noticed the country's history affected the delivery of healthcare uh, while I was there. So just briefly in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge regime in the 70s left a lasting and an indelible legacy on modern Cambodian life. When the Khmer Rouge took power in 1975, they immediately instituted a forced migration of all urban dwellers to the countryside to work in the farms. It was basically an extremist form of Mao socialism, uh, attempting to build an agrarian society. Over time, the Khmer Rouge's growing fear and paranoia led to the capture, torture, and interrogation of basically all urban dwellers and the educated classes that they could get their hands on. They rounded up teachers, professors, business owners, healthcare workers. They went so far as to target anyone who wore glasses. Basically everyone in this room. And as a result, approximately two million were tortured, slain, and buried in mass graves known as the killing fields throughout the Cambodian countryside. Although the Khmer Rouge has not been in power for nearly 40 years, their lasting legacy of violent terror, fear, and military hierarchy still permeates many aspects of current society and culture. Now, modern Cambodia is missing essentially an entire generation of trained uh, professional workforce, and in our case, resulting in significant dearth of healthcare providers. Uh, we will address a few examples of how local context um, often comes hand in hand with the, the management of limited resources. The management of limited resources is one of the most important factors in, to addressing global critical care. This includes the scarcity of equipment, supplies, and poor infrastructure. It also includes lack of human resources, limitation of trained healthcare workers, but also engineers and technicians. Um, so the dearth of healthcare providers is a thing that has been attempted to be addressed for, for several decades and gone in the 1990s and early, uh, relatively early approach to this was uh, due to the non-existence of EMS workers or ambulance systems in their in their major cities, private taxi cab drivers underwent basic first aid training to essentially become BLS providers on the scene. They were taught basic airway maneuvers, CPR, and wound care as part of their education. Uh, imagine if Uber drivers could, you know, compress wounds or turn people on their side when they're vomiting. Um, this study from the Journal of Intensive Care surveyed various LMIC hospitals, revealing the unavailability unavailability of trained intensive care personnel. Of note, ICU trained nurses, respiratory therapists, and financial assistance were least likely to be available in these countries. You may ask, what is the, uh, the exact you know, relevant benefit of financial services? Uh, in Cambodia, a lot of the ICUs and nurses were actually tabulating and being the accountants and basically the financial uh, people tabulating all the ICU services, which took out uh, uh, an immense amount of their time for patient care. This graph is from another study from the New England Journal showing the disparate gap in MDs, nurses, and other healthcare providers uh, between high-income and low-middle-income countries. 
And this table reveals the inadequate training and knowledge deficits of doctors and nurses in the clinical management of a variety of common critical medical conditions, with sepsis representing the largest knowledge gap here on the right. I'll talk through some examples of limited resources in the Cambodian healthcare system that I worked in. Uh, this is Khmer Soviet Friendship Hospital, the major district trauma center, and Phnom Penh's major public safety net hospital. This here is the main trauma bay in that hospital. Notice how empty it is. Notice how different it looks from ours. Um, barely any supplies kept in that room. There's a wide variety of ventilators used in Cambodia. In KSFH, there are only two to three ventilators in each ICU uh, that has roughly 20 patients in it. There are zero ventilators in the emergency department, so patients are bagged until a room opens up in the ICU. Uh, there are some contemporary ventilators, like the one on the right, um, but many ventilators from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like the one from the left. Um, the variety of ventilators uh, requires a broad familiarity for the nurses and doctors who use them, given that each machine has a different functionality, has totally different capabilities. Um, also, complex machinery such as vents, ultrasound machines, dialysis machines, will often break down and go unused sitting in the corner of the room. Um, and another large barrier is the lack of mechanics and engineers that can repair these machines. This table reveals the ubiquitous difficulty accessing a variety of ICU equipment, monitors, medicines, and blood products in LMICs compared to high-income counterparts. Here is an ICU rounds in a surgical ICU at KSFH. And this is a patient who has his airway temporized currently with an oral airway due to delays of preparing a malfunctioned ventilator. Notice the lack of a bag as well. Contrast that to the, slight, to the more resourced uh, private Calmet Hospital in Phnom Penh in the northern part of the city, which serves as the National Tertiary Medical Center. And here are some images from the Calmet Emergency Department. Notice the number of intubated patients here in this room and the need for bag, bag, uh, bag mask ventilation in the patient here in the foreground. And here's a zoomed out view of the same scene. Um, it's a busy emergency department. It's an emergency room in the classic sense. Uh, multiple intubated patients that are stacked right next to each other. I counted about um, 11 patients in the room here, which is about the amount of beds available to us in the entire trauma side of the ED at Harborview. And here's the overflow of patients into the hallway between the ED and the ICU. And here's the medical ICU with the uh, ICU team rounding. So the Cambodian doctors and nurses work in both the ED and ICU settings. The residents are cross-trained in anesthesia, critical care, and EM in a three-year residency. Just imagine that. Um, they work much more fluidly, though, between these two settings than what we're accustomed to in our hospitals. Um, one thing I noticed was that they have less of the sort of tribalism that we can often carry with us in our system uh, between the ED and ICU staff, doctors and nurses. Um, it brought to light our own siloed habits uh, when protocolized care can blindside providers to the bigger picture of uh, patient care. Um, and it reminded me that global health is a cross-cultural exchange that can force us to critically examine our own flaws and tendencies. With Intersect, which is UW's Consortium for Global Health and Critical Care, I helped to train ICU and ED doctors and nurses in mechanical ventilation in conjunction with UW pulmonologists and ICU nurses. This was in response to a baseline needs assessment done by Intersect. Um, and the affiliate Cambodian hospitals, showing that the biggest source of unaddressed morbidity and mortality was critical respiratory illness. While the overt objective was to teach management and care of ventilated patients, our overarching mission was to teach communication, leadership skills, and teamwork. 
with both MD and RN learners working together to promote teamwork-oriented communication techniques. Our teaching philosophy was that regardless of your title, if you work in a critical care setting, be it ED or ICU, there is a specific fundamental set of skills and knowledge that you need to have. Oftentimes, a busy PGY1 will be alone in a 20-bed ICU overnight without attending assistance. Nurses can thus intubate, play central lines, as well as other procedures. While this may seem out of the nursing scope of practice that we are familiar with, keep in mind that this is a system without respiratory therapists, CRNAs, or 24-hour anesthesia on call. So this is an example of task shifting, where there is limited resources and uh, personnel and staffing. As such, we made an effort to teach our doctor and nursing learners uh, the same core content. MDs were made to learn nursing skills, such as oral care of a ventilated patient and setting up a vent circuit. And nurses were made to learn MD skills, such as interpretation of AVGs and troubleshooting at high plateau pressure. Our hope was that this low-cost leadership and team training would be a highly cost-effective approach to addressing the country's critical care needs. So this ultimately brings us to the real question, which is, is global critical care truly sustainable? And where's the data? So multi-center cost-effectiveness studies um, on critical care interventions and resource poor settings have yet to be done. Uh, however, there is some literature suggesting, there's a lot of it literature actually, that uh, resource intensive interventions, certain ones such as emergency obstetric care, generalized surg surgical services and trauma surgery, compare favorably to prevention and primary care. Uh, such as childhood immunization and antiretroviral therapy uh, in terms of long-term cost-benefit. Um, in terms of ICU costs, we often picture in our minds a graph similar to this one, that there is a direct and positive correlation between the amount of ICU capacity and healthcare dollars spent per capita, with us being all the way up here. There is one study uh, with authors from BIDMC Harvard, Mayo Clinic, and economists from Bosnia-Herzegovina that looked at cost-effectiveness of ICU care in low-resource settings of, um, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The authors studied critically ill patients in their local hospitals alongside the costs incurred in these ICU settings, compared to a cohort of similarly critically ill patients receiving non-ICU care from around the world, extracted from literature review. They calculated incremental cost-effectiveness ratios, or ICERs, essentially the ratio of incremental cost uh, divided by incremental effects, costs and effects. Thus, a low ICER score is more cost-effective than a high ICER score. Um, they standardized these costs of interventions and translated incremental effects as the adjusted risk ratio benefit of the ICU interventions over non-ICU care, multiplied by the quality adjusted life years or qualities saved. The results showed that ICU care was very cost-effective compared to similar patients in other settings receiving uh, floor care only. This bar graph shows that cost, the big cost savings for different, um, for different model parameters of the ICER calculation, showing that ICU daily costs had the highest differential in impact on the ICER values, meaning that it contributed most to cost effectiveness. Um, this graph takes some time to interpret. Uh, the x-axis shows adjusted um, the uh, ARRs, the uh, adjusted risk ratios, the positive effect of ICU care compared to floor care for morbidity and mortality, and the y-axis is cost for quality adjusted life years. Um, the red line adjusts for daily ICU costs of about 100 at the lowest end of an ICU day, and the blue line up here for $600 per day, US dollars. And this graph basically shows that for ICU adventures with a higher adjusted risk ratio, i.e. more medical effectiveness, 
Um, compared to non-ICU care, the differential cost per ICU day decreases as you move towards being more medically effective. Um, and it essentially reaches the same value more or less as a floor day. Overall, ICU interventions showed an absolute cost effectiveness of about $3,000 per quality adjusted life year, which falls into the WHO's very effective, very cost effective category, as it's below the threshold of the GDP of the country per capita. So if ICU interventions might be cost effective, if they truly reduce morbidity and mortality, how would we know which interventions we should pick given our resource constraints in a chosen setting? And this brings up the importance of having regionally focused research based on the local epidemiology. So let's look at some examples about how a one-size-fits-all approach to critical care based on high-income country research can fail in resource-limited settings. So we're all familiar with our sepsis protocols, and despite the decline of early-goal-directed therapy with the simultaneous rise of Dr. Daniel Henning, we at least know that early antibiotics can save lives. And rapid resuscitation with fluid boluses and prevention of hypotension remain the mainstays of our treatment. And yet, plenty of literature shows that low-middle-income countries have consistently lower rates of fluid administration as compared to high-income countries. So it would make sense to promote this low-cost intervention of early fluid administration and antibiotics in low-middle-income countries, right? Well, as it turns out, many of you are already familiar with the, the FEAST study, but basically it's a landmark multi-center randomized control trial that looked at mortality amongst pediatric populations with signs of sepsis, comparing the effects of different fluid boluses. They enrolled children presenting to hospitals with some constellation of fevers, mental status, tachycardia, respiratory distress, or signs of decreased perfusion. They excluded children with obvious hypovolemia from uh, vomiting, diarrhea, or malnutrition. Group A compared uh, crystalloid boluses, colloid boluses, versus no bolus. Uh, the primary endpoint was 48-hour mortality. Uh, the boluses given were the typical 20 to 40 cc kilos of initial resuscitation that we're familiar with giving. And a second arm had a, a smaller population of hypotensive children in septic shock comparing crystalloid and colloid boluses. Uh, the study showed that in the non-hypotensive sepsis group, there was no significant impact between colloid or crystalloid boluses. But the more remarkable finding was that no matter what type of fluid boluses were given, giving resuscitative fluids was, in the end, more harmful, had an increased rate of mortality and morbidity than the fluid-restrictive approach did overall. And within the hypotensive arm, there was basically not enough uh, children to enroll um, in order to have statistically significant findings. So there are many hypotheses given, this, uh, given these surprising results. One leading explanation is the difference in epidemiology of pediatric sepsis in the sub-Saharan African population, where malaria or atypical bacterial infections predominate. Fluid boluses could therefore theoretically lead to high risks for uh, cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, um, in the high-income countries where these uh, fluid protocols were originally developed. And of the theory is that the administration of fluids throughout the study region was something that was not familiar to a lot of the doctors and nurses that uh, locally were working there, and thus the delivery and the techniques were inconsistent owing to variations in nursing and physician training. The silver lining was that the overall risk of mortality, regardless of whether the patient received boluses or no boluses in the study, was lower during the study compared to prior to the study's start. So this may be a, due to a largely beneficial Hawthorne effect. and speaks overall to the importance of conducting research in low-resource countries, if only to put more attention, focus, and resources in the healthcare delivery processes locally. 
And another example of the need for regionally specific research is ARDS management in low-income countries. This is a study uh, by Riviello that highlights the Berlin criteria, the foundational hallmark um, used to define ARDS, and involves diagnostic tools that are not always readily available in limited resource settings. And this graph lifts the barriers of ARDS diagnosis and management in resource limited versus rich settings, given the limited availability of AVGs, rapid chest x-rays, or CT scans for critically ill patients. Um, so in the study, the authors proposed the Kigali modification of the Berlin criteria based on work done in Rwanda. The Kigali modification utilizes several individually validated replacements of the key Berlin criteria. For example, rather than using x-ray evidence or CT evidence of bilateral opacities, um, they allowed the use of ultrasound looking for B lines bilaterally and diffusely. Um, and instead of using a PF ratio that would require an ABG, um, they use a modified pulse oxygen saturation FiO2 ratio, less than 315, um, as a substitute. And in their results, when the Kigali modification was trialed um, in certain hospitals in Rwanda, it showed that they would have identified 0% of hypoxemic or critically ill patients as having ARDS, whereas the Kigali modification diagnosed approximately 4% of patients with ARDS. Um, this study to me exemplifies the concept that we introduced earlier of critical illness and critical care not being defined by, um, by imaging modalities or complex diagnostics, but really of the gravity of illness that a patient is presenting with. And this rang really true for me in Cambodia, where the nurses during our trainings would often say, well, we don't get pulse oxes routinely. We don't um, always are, have x-rays available because there's no such thing as a stat x-ray. They have to go to radiology and back. So a lot of what we end up teaching was teaching hypercarbic respiratory failure, hypoxemic respiratory failure, um, looking at the patient, looking at the clinical setting. So with the discrepancy between the evidence-based management of sepsis, ARDS, and other critical disease processes, uh, across different low middle income countries, how do we reconcile what we believe to be correct critical care practice that we're learning throughout our residency? If we assume that all we know about critical care is wrong in the developing world without regionally focused evidence base, are we going to wait to do randomized control trials in every low resource country and, uh, before we intervene? Um, and so how are we gonna reconcile this? There's not a great answer. But it does bring us to national and international surveillance that can be helpful um, and the research that can be done to benefit the building of critical care medicine systems. Ultimately, what we are talking about is the scaling up and the unifying of broad scale interventions, much like our trauma system here in EMS care in the Whammy region is a multi-collaborative, multi-state system. This requires the cooperation of national as well as international actors to create guidelines and best practice recommendations, but also simultaneously allowing for regional tailoring of the interventions based on local research, uh, involving national health ministries, university hospitals, district police, fire response systems, and public infrastructural projects. This also includes disease prevention strategies, such as monitoring of nosocomial infections, both within single healthcare sites and across national systems, um, and quality improvement monitoring and evaluation programs. Overall, uh, there are few low-income countries with any published data on IC resource availability, as shown by this map from the World Bank. Uh, of the 36 countries defined as low-income by the World Bank, uh, only 15 countries shown here 
uh, in red have had publications or some kind of surveillance in ICU care. And this map from the WHO shows disease surveillance based um, disease uh, surveillance on micro antimicrobial resistance. And note the lack of reporting, national or otherwise, from countries where known multi-drug resistant organisms exist, such as Sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia. And this is an infograph from the WHO showing the um, kind of global disease burden of trauma in industrializing countries worldwide. So the WHO's Trauma Acute Care and Emergency Program is uh, on the forefront of addressing the growing burden of trauma and emergency illness. They're in the process of introducing the Emergency Care Systems Framework. It's a blueprint for low-middle-income countries to develop their own multi-systems trauma and EMS frameworks from pre-hospital to the ED to the ICU and eventually for, uh, to transfer and referral networks within hospitals by utilizing the WHO guidelines, uh, but allowing the system for regionally focused care, leadership and low middle income countries can tailor systems that work best for their populations. UW has also been involved in these global critical care efforts, including the Global Division of Harborview's Injury Prevention Research Center. Inspired by the success of safe uh, surgery checklists as popularized by Tool Gawande, um, Harvard trauma surgeons, including Charles Mock here, um, as well as others from uh, the U.S., have piloted the trauma care checklist, analogous to the OR-based safe surgery checklist, uh, but to be used in the trauma resuscitation phase. Uh, this checklist has components of care that you would expect based on ATLS guidelines uh, immediately after the primary and secondary surveys, and also a final care coordination checklist, uh, which function functions as a post-resuscitation huddle almost, or almost more like a IC sign-out checklist. And uh, the checklist, when piloted, showed a 50% lower odds mortality, um, odds of mortality in the most severely injured patients with an ISS of over 25 compared to pre-intervention mortality rates. I'll be involved in a follow-up study exploring the local barriers and facilitators uh, to the con continued use of the trauma care checklist in the study sites that where they were piloted. And similar efforts on the sepsis front are being made, are being made by Intersect, the, the critical care group here at UW, um, housed in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care uh, with Dr. Owen West and Shevin Jacobs as the leads on that. Uh, here's an example of a bundled sepsis care checklist being piloted and also used by the WHO, co-developed by WHO and Intersect researchers. And there are increasingly more opportunities for residents to become, to become involved in global critical care. Uh, with the established interests of global emergency medicine and now a growing interest in EM critical care. Uh, new groups such as the section here for international critical care uh, within the IFM are being started. So um, to conclude, global critical care is without a doubt an essential field with arguably growing needs um, as the world becomes more interconnected and health systems must respond uh, to increasingly complex health needs of, of the developing world. Uh, special thanks here to uh, the Global Health Track faculty, Intersect, the INP, and uh, the Critical Care Track here at UW. And uh, the WHO groups that I'm working with, Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center, and IFEM, that helped me a lot out with this talk. And a special thanks to everyone in Cambodia that I worked with at UHS and uh, KSFH. And I read some things to do this study. And so thank you very much for your time. Uh, any questions?
big question. Um, one other factor that was really on my mind while doing this talk was really palliative care and hospice. And I think that's something that um, we, you know, with, the, with this sort of automatic bundled approaches to various care, you know, we're going to get Q2 hour, Q4 hour labs, we're going to do all these things in the ICU while we still have hospice and palliative care on our minds. Um, and I think that's one of the beauty of the ICU approach that we take uh, here at UW. Um, and in these settings, you know, you really just don't even have that option. So um, they, they have in the emergency department at CalMet that busy uh, single room uh, department, a room that's essentially the hospice room of the ED. And I think that that was put into place not because there was some like crazy novel approach to palliative care, but because they literally just needed a room where uninsured patients could die because they couldn't do anything else because they, would, um, they wouldn't be able to pay out of pocket because there's no national insurance system. So because of that, they, they've kind of been propelled to address these issues much more aggressively um, and essentially people would be, you know, kind of have the best things done for them for their given situation in a palliative care manner and sometimes go home to die. Um, and there wasn't the sort of same legal like ramifications that we have. So I think that is a big one is uh, addressing what uh, hospice and palliative care can do, not only for us, but also in low resource countries. Um, and the other big thing I think is a, a general takeaway from all sorts of for all sorts of disease processes, but really keeping the patient's best interests in mind and like looking at the global perspective. Um, as I kind of alluded to before, it's easy to sort of say, well, our job in the ED is to create a dispo. Our job in the ICU is to, you know, keep the body running until we make a decision otherwise. Um, but I think working in a setting like, like the ones here, like really put in stark perspective, um, you know, looking at where this patient is going and what is the best need for the family members when you don't have the resources to just keep going. Great, other questions? All right, thank you guys.